Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. Many have tried to tackle the mystery of Jack the Ripper. Despite the many attempts to figure the whodunit over the last 128 years, there has been little evidence in which to identify a definitive suspect. However, that may have all changed in recent years, with third-party investigators looking into the slayings. Could Jack the Ripper finally have a face, or perhaps even a name? We find out now. Now Paratruth presents Jack the Ripper Mystery Song with special guest Randy Williams. How's it going, Parafans? Welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. And uh, we've got an awesome show for you guys. It's going to be a mind-blowing one at that. But first, how's the week been for you, sir? The week has been fine and dandy, applying for a number of different production jobs here in the Cleveland area, and it kind of sucks because <laughs> there's not much around here, really. So uh, I'm, I'm weighing options now. So planning on broadening your horizons if something doesn't pan out there, I take it? Exactly. Okay. So, uh, well, as you folks can see, if you're watching YouTube, I am in a different locale. I'm training for my job, so... I am in a hotel room, so uh, it's not the typical paranormal books and stuff, weird things I have behind me. So, um, uh, well, tonight we've got a very interesting guest for you guys. His name is Randy Williams. He's actually done an investigation into the Jack the Ripper case, and he's been told by other uh, actual... uh, cold case investigators and uh, different detectives that he his explanation is the closest that they have come across that sounds the most likely. So it will be a really interesting show. I want to get them right on for you guys. So we're going to go to the line with Randy Williams. All right, Randy, welcome to Paratruth Radio. How are you? Great, thanks. Great to be here. So we wanted to get you on because you had contacted us on uh, Twitter about the investigation that you've done into Jack the Ripper. So what I wanted to give you a chance to do before we get started is to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got started with investigating this particular case. Okay. Well, um, first off, I'm uh, about 61,000 years old. My birthday's on Friday. And uh, I've been investigating the Ripper case. I've been in, involved in, you know, 
I don't know if you can call it investigating it for 40 plus years, but I've been interested in the case okay. since I was a teenager. Um, I'm also involved in the martial arts pretty heavily. Some of your listeners, viewers may know me from that. And um, just about the same amount of time I've been involved in martial arts, which is uh, which is going to be, I think, 47 years on my birthday. Um, the same amount of time I've been spending investigating or looking into the Ripper case. Mm-hmm. So it's been an interest of mine for many, many years. And in about 2012, early 2012, I sort of made up my mind that I was going to really go in heavy and try to try to solve it. Um, by trade, I'm a private investigator. That's my job. And so I decided to use all of the training that I got in, in investigation together with some of the, the logic training that I got through the martial arts and apply it to the Ripper case. Okay. And I have a sort of a, a formula that, that I use in my investigations, which sort of largely inspired by Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> and which I've also been reading since, since I was just a kid. And um, what I did was I created this sort of a, a set of filters that I use to solve cases. And what I do is I put all the facts into this. It's almost that's sort of a computer, you could say. And um, it sort of sifts through everything for me. And what's left after I've, I've gone through all of the different permutations is usually my solution and usually is correct. So I started applying that set of filters to the Ripper case in 2012 and came up with the solution, which... Um, through some sheer luck, I managed to uh, meet Dr. Michael Bodden, who you may have heard of. Dr. Mm. Michael Bodden is one of the world's, well, probably the world's top forensic uh, pathologists. He is quite famous for, if nothing else, his TV show Autopsy on HBO, where he discusses some of the very famous cases he's worked on. Um, just to name a few, like Elvis, uh, uh, President Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, just O.J. Simpson case victims. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Bodden is, you know, he's impeccable. And I managed to meet up with Dr. Bodden um, a couple years ago and uh, found myself alone with him for a couple of hours. And so I told him my solution to the Ripper case. Now, Dr. Bodden had at one time in his life attempted to solve it. So <clears throat> what happened when I met him and talked to him, it wasn't like I had to explain to him who any of these people were, the, the people that I've discovered are Jack the Ripper mm-hmm. behind it, because he knew all of this, the facts of the case. And once I explained to him my theory that I'm going to explain to you guys tonight, Dr. Bodden said, my God, kid, you've solved it. And he immediately got in touch with Dr. Cyril Wecht and Dr. Henry Lee and who have also been studying the case since they were kids and they're in their 80s and couldn't solve it. And both of them agreed after having seen my case. I went and visited them and presented my case. They both agreed that I solved it. Now, it's not easy to convince these guys. These guys are the world's top criminologists. Mm. And, you know, between the three of them, they worked on every case you can imagine, every high-profile case. I just saw Dr. Lee on TV a minute ago for this new O.J. Simpson special that's coming on this weekend. Um, and you may have seen Dr. Lee on that John Benet Ramsey special that ran 
couple weeks ago. But anyway, these guys are the top, top notch guys. And they have been approached before with Ripper theories. I don't want to name any names, but there was a very, very wealthy author who approached all three of them to rubber stamp their theory for Jack the Ripper and offered them money. And none of the doctors agreed to do it because they didn't believe the solution was correct. Mm-hmm. And all three of them are in with both feet on my solution. So that's a, a little bit about me and, and my investigation. And then um, whatever you want to know about how I arrived at it or any particular aspect of the case, I thought you guys might be interested, uh, maybe Eric interested in uh, the fact that I've proven um, that it was a direct attack on Christianity, mm-hmm. among other things. And I can show you evidence. I'm not just a crackpot with a theory. I have actual evidence, which is lacking in all the other cases. And why? Because they're they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I have evidence that I can back up my case with, not conjecture. I have some conjecture, but it's based upon evidence, which I'll share with you guys tonight. Okay. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Um, before we get into that, or into that, I do want to ask one question in particular. Um, I mean, you already kind of stated why you're investigating or why you investigated this case, just the fact that you've been so interested in it. But based on that alone, what's really in it for you, considering no one can really be put behind bars or anything like that? Uh, what's your main you know, motivation? A, a couple things. Uh, but that's a good question. First of all, I'm going to I'm going to come right out and say that I really wish to be known um, to go down in history as the man to have solved the Ripper case, the detective to have solved it. Um, I've made something of a name for myself, maybe not a good one, but something of a name in the martial arts. I've written a bunch of books on it and done pretty much everything you can do with it other than be a movie star. Um, and I want my legacy to be the detective who solved the Ripper case, not the Wing Chun master that wrote the books or videos or whatever else. That's, that's my legacy. I'm getting up in years now and I, you know, you, you start thinking about what you're going to leave behind on this earth and you want to do something worthwhile and be remembered. And that's my main motivation. Um, what else is in it for me in the, in the immediate run? I've written a book. Like to see people buy the book. That would be great. Um, and also I would like, because I've proven uh, to my satisfaction and to the doctor's satisfaction and a lot of other people's satisfaction that this was a direct attack on Christianity, I would like to sort of name and shame those people and sort of vindicate Christianity because I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, and um, I'm not a devout Catholic as I should be, but mm-hmm. um, when you understand what they were doing and the attacks they made on Christianity, I really want to show people what they did and make sure that they are named, uh, like I said, named and shamed for what they did. Right. Right. Great. Well, the one thing that I found very interesting was the uh, theory that you had came up with with these names of these gentlemen, these four guys, uh, and the My Boss letter with the little character, whatever, cartoon, whatever you'd want to call it at the bottom of it, with it being formed out of the the initials of their letters, which in your your YouTube video, you graphically uh, show how it's connected. Um, 
how did you break this down to come up with those specific names and, and how did you link them to the the uh, different murders? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, the, the letter that we're talking about was an afterthought after I knew the names of my killers. Okay. It's not like I got the names from the letter. You had just linked that to that. But, okay. But it was an afterthought. Once I knew who these guys were, um, then I, it's amazing how much evidence that you can amass once you've made your main case. Mm. You see, because there's a lot of um, – I have direct evidence that would be admissible in court as direct evidence, and then I have circumstantial evidence, and then I have what, what I call conjectural evidence, which is that letter. Okay. And if we were going to present this case in court, which, by the way, I've been told by the district attorney of my county that it would stand up in court and that I could prosecute at least two of my four successfully, um, my suspects. But in any case, what I would do with that letter is after having presented all the direct evidence and the circumstantial evidence, I would say now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you believe and understand this evidence that I presented earlier and you're satisfied that these are the men responsible, now I'd like you to look at this and see how it fits with the case. But just like with the anagram that I solved on the, the, the Jews graffito from the, the Goulston Street graffito, mm. um, if I didn't have their names first, I never could have un, I never could have solved the anagram. But once you know which letters of the equation to take out, then you know what letters you have left to anagram and have it make some sense. Mm. So once I knew their names and I knew that Louis Deemschutz had a penchant for word games. And, uh, you know, he, he loved the word game. He was very, very intelligent, obviously, and he liked playing word games. And once I understood he liked anagrams, he liked puzzles, he liked word games. Even his own name is a word game. There's no such name as Diemschutz in Russian. It's a Russian and German term that means protector of noble women or protector of smoke, as in smoke and mirrors or, you know, up in smoke. It, it, even his name was a joke. He entered the country under a fake name. Uh, anyway, once I knew that this guy was a, a player of games, um, then I was able to look at that letter that you just mentioned and see something in it that other people wouldn't see. Now, you know, you guys are way too young to remember this, but when, when, when I was a kid, there was a boys magazine called Highlights. And Highlights had every month they had this little puzzle section at the, at the end. And the puzzle section sometimes would have these pictures that were made up of letters. And it'd be like a rabbit, you know, let's say it was a bunny and, you know, the B for bunny would be the top of the rabbit's head. And then the two ears would be sort of, that would be the B. And then the U would be his head and so on. And then you'd find the word bunny in this picture. And, and I remember that, you know, as hard as the artist tried, there was always something a little funny about the picture because it had to be in order to make letters fit into the picture. Right. But when I looked into that sketch at the back of that, that note we're talking about, I noticed that it reminded me of those old highlights puzzle pictures. And so I started just playing, and then I find miraculously that the main big figure in the picture is made largely upon the letters LD, Louis Deemschutz. And the little guy stabbing the victim is, he's based on IK, Isaac Kozabrowski. You can see the letters plain as day. 
And then the guy standing against the wall, standing guard, is made up of SF, Samuel Friedman. And then there's a little PP at the bottom, plain as day, which to me stands for Prince Peter Kropotkin. So once I did that, then I started looking and I said, oh, my God, which I show in that video. I show that you can get every letter of Isaac M. Kozabrowski out of the first little figure, and you can get every letter of Louis Diemschutz out of the main second figure, and every letter of Samuel Friedman out of the last figure. But yet, guess what? I can't get Randy Williams out of any three of them, any of the three. And I've sat down with a number of other friends and couldn't get their names out of all three or any of them. Now, I did sit down with a couple of guys, and I was able to get their names out of one or two of the figures. Mm-hmm. But the difference being, as you see in the video that I did, um, if you look at what's left, there's nothing left of the drawing. Once you take Isaac Kozabrowski out of that drawing, there's nothing left of the drawing. Whereas if I took, I was sitting down with my friend Stephen, I don't want to say his last name, but Stephen, I was able to get his whole name out of it, but there were still pieces left in the puzzle. Okay. But I can't get Randy Williams out of any of the three. But yet, and here's another thing, I can't get Louis Diemschutz out of figure one or Samuel Friedman, but I can get Isaac Kozbrodsky. I can't get Kozbrodsky or Friedman out of the second figure, nor can I get Louis Diemschutz out of the third figure or Isaac Kozbrodsky. So this wouldn't stand up in court as evidence, right? but it absolutely would be something that would help the jury say, well, I, I, I believe this other evidence you've come up with, this direct evidence, mm-hmm. where you've shown me this guy did it. Mm-hmm. So now that I believe that he did it, I'm open to this word game he may have played. And, and then they might accept that as sort of icing on the cake, but it's by no means my proof, and it's not what my case rests upon. Right. Right. Well, now speaking of the initials that you've uh, that you came across here, uh, either the I and the K or IV. Uh, you had mentioned Isaac Kozabrowski um, had carved his name or his initials into one of the victims' faces, See, and man. the possibility that they were Roman numerals even for the number six. six now, six, six. right now, based on that, and I'm assuming that any many of the other investigators, especially back in 1888 never really pieced it together or, no. you know, seen such evidence. So what do you think is the difference between their investigation and yours? Is it more of a, just a third-party thing? You're looking in from a different, you know, side well, or... Well, uh, I would say this is similar to what I said about the, the cartoon. Because until you know this guy's name is Isaac Kozabrowski, mm-hmm. you're not able to see the IK, which is plain as day once you understand when you look at the picture of the girl's facial wounds and you look at it turned sideways the way the killer was said to have been knelt next to the body, the doctors mm-hmm. could tell by the wounds on her body that he was kneeling on the right side of her body. So if you look at her face turned as if you were kneeling to the right, mm-hmm. you can see plain as day, IK, three times. and you Or you could, if you want to interpret it as VI, 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 that's also right. there. But if you're an investigator in the 1800s, um, and, you're, and you haven't had the luxury of all this previous investigation over the past 140 years and forensic science that's improved, and if you don't know the guy's name is Isaac Kozbrowski, you're not going to see the IK. And if you mm-hmm. look at all these previous investigations that other authors have done and other people have done, they say, oh, 
some of them I, I read, one said he was trying to make her look like a clown and the little V's cut in her chin and her cheeks were made mm-hmm. to look like clown makeup. And other people say, well, maybe it's some ancient symbol or something else. But to me, when you turn that picture of her face sideways, the way the killer was kneeling, it's very obviously IK three times. And the M is on her chin. And that was his middle initial, Isaac M. Kozbrodsky. <laughs> and I've eliminated, I, I actually know that it couldn't have been Deemschutz doing it. It had to be Isaac without Deemschutz for reasons I'll explain later. So I think they didn't see it because in, in a similar way to the cartoon, if you don't know who your your suspect is, you can't pick that out of the air. I didn't pick it out of the air. It was only after I knew it was Isaac that I realized what the symbolism meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a 50-acre ranch here. And if you came to visit me and you dropped your watch near the apple tree uh, and you said to me, hey, I, I left my watch. I, I'm pretty sure I left it by the apple tree. And we invited 1,000 friends to look for your watch, but only I knew you left it at the apple tree. Guess who'd find the watch? Right. So once I know that it's Isaac Kozabrowski, Louis Deemschutz, Samuel Friedman, the evidence is all there that nobody else has seen because they didn't bother looking at them mm-hmm. for reasons I can explain to you guys later, why they never looked at them. Right. There's a very good reason because, as I told you, Deemschutz was brilliant, and he set up a perfect alibi, a ruse that has kept him free of suspicion for all these years. And even to this day, ripperologists, some of them, will ridicule me because they don't, they haven't bothered reading my research and they don't know how he did it. So they still think it's impossible for him to have done it. Mm-hmm. But I've shown very clearly in my research exactly how he did it. And if you read that, you'll understand exactly how he did it. But he was so smart in the way he set it up that unless you really go in depth and look at it like I did, on the surface, it'll appear impossible for him to have done it. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing with evidence. You have to have it in order to link it all together. All right, folks. Exactly. Um, we're going to take our first break here. You've been listening to Paratruth Radio with our guest, Randy Williams. We will be right back after Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Do you have brown eyes? Do you wish they were blue? Did you know that there's a procedure that can make them blue? According to CNN.com, brown eyes are simply brown due to greater pigmentation than blue eyes. Greg Homer said that the fundamental principle is that under every brown eye, there's a blue eye. Now, with that said, Stroma Medical pioneered a laser procedure that eliminates brown melanin in the anterior layers of the iris. So far, only 17 patients in Mexico and 20 in Costa Rica have undergone the treatment. However, the company is still fundraising the procedure and hopes that clinical trials will be completed in several years. So if you have brown eyes and are interested in blue eyes, soon that option will be available to you for about $5,000. 
right, folks. Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. And we've been talking to Randy Williams about his investigation into Jack the Ripper. Now, one thing that actually came to mind uh, before the break, Randy, is we've been talking about kind of the stuff that you came across after you had come up with the names of the people that have had uh, committed these atrocities. Now, you've been talking about it being an attack on Christianity. Uh, the one thing that I thought was kind of really interesting is you you actually call these the Theotokos murders. Um, it's pronounced Theotokos. Oh, Theotokos. I, I apologize. Um, no, it's not. No, just, it's a hard word. It's a Greek yeah. word for Mother Mary. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the Greek name. The Greek name for Mother Mary. Okay. So how did you get to the, the point where you came up with these four men and the fact that it was kind of like a conspiracy against Christianity. How did you come up with all of that? Well, that's a good one. And that was a tough one. Let me explain uh, how I knew what one day I was looking at, and I'm sure, you know, lots of people have tried. And I noticed that you guys looked into it as well, um, that the, the days weren't just random days that mm-hmm. the Ripper killed. And the thing is that people have looked at it and looked at it, and some people have found a couple of unusual things about the days, but the the one thing that they never found that I did find, and I kind of did it by chance, was the fact that every one of the 14, not five, Justin, 14 murders all took place on Christian feast days of the Theotokos of Mother Mary. Okay. By the way... Three of my victims were named Mary. But we have, or at least two of them were named Mary and one went by Mary. It wasn't her name, though. In any case, um, here's what I did, how I found it. One day, I just, on a, on a, just a hunch, I opened up Google and I thought, let me just Google the, the days of the murders, not the days in terms of 1888, just Let's just take October 1st and let's just see what October 1st is. So I just, what's October, what's special about October 1st? And it went, you know, National Secretary's Day, uh, give your dog a bath day, uh, Israeli independence, whatever the, you know, the, and then way down the bottom, it said Christian feast day of the Theotokos, Eastern liturgical Bible. So I thought, okay, Theotokos, huh? I don't know what that is. So I Google the next date and I picked, you know, another one of the murder dates, punched it in, and it came up with, you know, uh, National Flower Day, Arbor Day, Earth Day, whatever. Eastern Liturgical Bible, Feast Day of the Theotokos. Uh, I don't know what that is. So I'm going down the line, down the line, and I get to like five or six murders. And they're all Theotokos days. That's weird. So I look up Theotokos. What is it? It's Mother Mary. Theotokos is the Greek name for Mother Mary. Sorry, it's those damn Baskervilles down the road in their house. <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm thinking, you know, what's this Theotokos deal? Well, it turns out that's the that's the Greek name for Mother Mary. Okay. Okay. Theotokos is, is, you know, those icons you see in church if you guys go to church. Well, I know you Right. Do. You know, there's the, the pictures, and you usually see Mother Mary, and she's usually like this. That's called the Oran's mm-hmm. position. 
and there's a circle with the baby Jesus. Right. That's called Theotokos icon. Okay. And by the way, Mary, uh, Catherine Eddowes was left in Mitre Square like this, exactly like that, with the circle cut out where there should have been a baby Jesus, mm-hmm. uterus removed in Mitre Square. You know what the Mitre is? No, not offhand. It's the hat the Pope wears. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> so Giemschutz wanted to sort of crap on the hat, the head of the head of the Christian church. Anyway, so I'm looking at, and I find out that every one of these murders, and one of them, there's two murders that took place on the same day, two different years, September 9th. So I'm thinking, you know, every one of these is a theoretical, so I'm like, all right, well, just for just for fun, let me just Google my birthday, January 13th, not a theoretical day. Let me Google my mom's birthday, April 14th, not a theoretical day. Hmm. So then I look up Theotokos itself, the, the, the feast. <laughs> it's called the, the Feast of the Theotokos. There's a special day in Christianity called the Feast of the Intercession of the Theotokos. That's where Mother Mary uh, kind of went to bat for sinners, and she goes to bat for us and tries to intercede on our behalf. Now, um, which, by the way, Prince Kropotkin's mother built the Church of the Theotokos, the Intercession of Theotokos, but we'll talk about that later. Um, the double event took place on that day. Hmm. Um, in any case, I looked it up. Guess how many Theotokos days there are in a year? Twelve. There's 14 murders. Hmm. Two of them took place on the same day, a year apart. Um, and one of them wasn't necessarily a ripper killing. But they all took place on the feast days of the Theotokos, of which there are only 12 in a year. So I had a mathematician friend of mine run the numbers. What are the odds that these murders could have taken place on Theotokos days, 14 murders, 12 Theotokos days, of which there are only 12 in a year, over a two-year period, because we, we... put in all the days. Actually, we did a three-year period. Mm-hmm. So that makes the odds even less. Mm-hmm. And he told me that the odds against it being a coincidence are a figure expressed by seven, followed by 15 zeros to one wow. against it being a coincidence, which means that's basically the equivalent of a DNA match. It wasn't a coincidence. Right. right. Those murders all took place on purpose on Theotokos nights. Mary Kelly was killed on Michaelmas. That's the day we celebrate or honor St. Michael, who put Lucifer down into hell. Um, it was also a feast day of the Immaculate Heart, and her heart was missing. There was a big fire built in her room. The cops don't know why. They think it was for light. I think it was to cook that heart. Remember, Jack the Ripper in the From Hell letter talks about He's a cannibal. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a, an interesting Moby Dick connection to that letter, too, we can get to if we have time. But um, to, to answer your question on the Theotokos then. Now, besides Theotokos days, two were killed on St. John the Baptist beheading days. One of the girls was killed on the feast of the beheading of St. John the Baptist. Another was killed on the, the day of the finding of the precious head of St. John the Baptist. That girl, the, the doctor said, the killer had attempted to saw her head off. 
So we have these connections to Christianity, this mm. icon, sort of the, this blasphemous attack on Christianity in Mitre Square, the head of the head of Christianity. He leaves the victim with their uterus taken out, a big hole where there should be the baby Jesus in the icon, and she's left in the Oran's position, you know, in a right. what I believe was a blasphemous attack on Christianity. Okay. Now, with all of this said, though, um, and I mean, obviously, a lot of the evidence points to some type of attack on Christianity or a ritualistic uh, murder spree in some way or another. But do we have any evidence or do you have any evidence um, that tells us why, maybe, why they yes. would have? OK, can you yeah. tell us a little about that? Yeah, they had their three main motives for the Ripper attacks were race, religion, and politics, not necessarily in that order. Um, very, very much like the ISIS attacks today, mm-hmm. in the sense that they're racially motivated, they're motivated by religion and political reasons. So let me talk about the, I talked about the religious reason. It was an attack on Christianity. Now, race one of the things that we know from eyewitness descriptions and from a lot of circumstantial evidence, the Ripper was Jewish. We know even he was even spotted in the act during the double event by a Jewish man who identified him as a Jew, as two mm-hmm. Jews, as a matter of fact. Okay. And they shouted a Hebrew, well, a, a Jewish man's name at each other during the crime as a kind of a code word. So we know they were Jewish. Now, with the ISIS crimes now, we have the Muslims attacking Christianity. Right. In this case, it was a Jewish attack, but it wasn't spurred, I don't think, mainly by a hatred for Christianity per se. It was spurred by the fact that there was a system in place in England that was known as the sweating system. The sweating system was was one step short of slavery of the Jewish people. Jews were you know, would flood into to England to escape persecution, thinking they were coming to this country with all this freedom. And they were put to work in these sweatshops and paid ridiculously low wages, basically forced to live in Whitechapel and under really, really squalid, horrific conditions. They were paid next to nothing, worked half to death, and they were strongly discriminated against in every other area. They were... Uh, you know, there was racial slurs. There were cartoons in the newspaper with depicting, you know, caricatures of Jews in, in really derogatory ways. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the Rippers decided to fight back. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to bring the world's attention to Whitechapel. They were trying to show the world um, that there was poverty and disease and famine and homelessness and prostitution in London, the capital of the empire of Britain. They wanted people to see that England wasn't fountains and uh, palaces and polo games and cricket. They wanted to, they wanted the world to see instead the, the bad part of England. They wanted people's attention, which is why I believe they chose prostitutes. You know, back in those days, in the 1800s, there wasn't Playboy magazine. There weren't R and X-rated movies. There, there was. It was the Victorian age, which is a code word for prudishness. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can imagine the way that a headline 
would, would grab people's attention. It was a form of propaganda, which is near and dear to the anarchists and communists, which they were, by the way, anarchists, socialists. Um, propaganda is very near and dear to those causes. So if you can imagine being a, a, a guy in the 1800s and seeing a newspaper article about a prostitute being murdered, even today that grabs people's attention. Look mm-hmm. at how many people are interested in uh, the Long Island serial killer now, or you know Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, or you know Ted Bundy. You know when you hear about sex crimes, especially with prostitutes are involved, it's salacious. It grabs the attention, mm-hmm. and I think they did that for two reasons: a to get people's attention as a form of propaganda, and b because I think that they wanted to draw the attention to the fact that there are prostitutes in London. These poor girls that have to work for a loaf of stale bread or a couple of pennies to pay for their, they call DAS money, their, their rent for the night, overnight fee to stay in a really crappy um, sort of boarding house. Mm. So I think that that was the, the reason that they chose the prostitutes and they, why they did it in Whitechapel. Because they were trying to show the world the injustices to the Jewish people. And okay. of course, so that would be the, the politics and, and race. Okay. So one thing that I found kind of interesting through reading through your research is um, the fact that two of the victims were wearing hats and two of the murderers were linked to uh, a, a hat shop and a, uh, I believe it was a, uh, a clothing shop. Um, yeah. yeah. I call that the hat connection. But it was actually four girls. Oh, it was four. I four of my yeah. victims. Four of my victims had bought hats recently. Very one the night before she was killed. Okay. She bought it at a shop 0.2 miles away from Samuel Friedman's house. Samuel Friedman was a cat blocker, which means a person that shapes hats. And a milliner, well, milliner is a hat seller, and a tailor. Not only were the victims, some of the victims connected to just recently having bought or shopped for hats, but the Ripper himself was described by eyewitnesses as wearing a wide variety of hats. Deerstalker, uh, wide awake, um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of different, a peak cap, a lot of different hats were described. Billycock. These are different types of hats that people said he was wearing. So I thought, you know, wow, that's funny. And it wasn't just two. Dean Schutz's wife was a cap maker. Mm. Friedman was a cap blocker. Kozbrodsky was a cap machinist. They were all, the three of them were linked to the hat industry in one way or another. And also the Ripper was seen to have been wearing a number of kind of stylish coats. And they were described by eyewitnesses, you know, astrakhan, cutaway, um, and, and some of the different coats he was seen wearing. Who would have access to all these hats and coats? Maybe a tailor, a milliner? Right. That's one mm-hmm. of those little circumstantial things right. that in, in and of itself doesn't mean much. But when you put it together with the big picture, it means a lot, at least to me. Right. right. Well, and one of the victims was found close to one of the shops, correct? Um, well, you, you know, Friedman's tailor shop was the next block over from where the double event took place at the IWMEC. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. That, I mean, to me, 
even though you would consider it circumstantial evidence, I mean, if I were on a jury, that would kind of point me in that direction of guilty over innocent. So I, I think that is a huge part, even though it's circumstantial, is a huge part of your research in proving that these gentlemen did commit this murder, or murders, rather. Well, let's talk about um, the fact that Diemschutz, Friedman, and Kozabrowski were arrested for a violent crime less than six months after the double event, which took place at their club, mm-hmm. where Diemschutz was the president. Now, the first people out the door when Diemschutz found, quote-unquote, the body of Elizabeth Stride, the first four people out the door were Diemschutz's wife, Isaac Kozbrodsky and Samuel Friedman with Diemschutz. Then came other club members. But they were the first ones out the door. They just happened to be the same four that were involved in this violent riot that took place at the IWMEC, Diemschutz's club, less than five months, less than six months later. Diemschutz's wife violently attacked a policeman with a hair broom. Diemschutz attacked two policemen. Diemschutz, Friedman, and Kozabrowski attacked a bunch of people. They dragged a policeman into the exact spot where Liz Stride's body had been found by Diemschutz and beat him to a pulp and broke his leg. They beat him with sticks, kicked him, and broke his leg. On the exact spot where Elizabeth Stride had been killed. But but besides that fact, earlier that same day, Diemschutz led a bunch of marchers to the great synagogue at Mitre Square, which is where the second murder of the double event took place, at his arch enemy, the Reverend and Dr. Adler. That was his church. The, the second murder of the double event took place right behind Dr. Adler's church. Kropotkin and Diemschutz hated Adler. They wrote about how much they hated him. Now, they, the second murder of the double event took place there. Then Dr. Adler came out of the church and said, get out of here, you guys. He turned them away. They wanted to enter the great synagogue. He wouldn't let them. So then they marched back to the club, and a riot ensued. Mm. At this riot, one of the people that Diemschutz, Kozbrowski, and Friedman beat up, besides the policeman, was a guy named Israel Sunshine. Israel Sunshine just happened to live at 108-119 Goulston Street, which is the exact address where the Goulston Street graffito was written on the wall. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was that was Israel Sunshine's house. So now we have four connections to the double event, the day of the riot, that those three guys were arrested and Dean Schitz's wife attacked a policeman. Hmm. Oh. Wow. That's all fact. That's it's, not my yeah. conjecture. Well, right. That's all fact. That right. I can easily prove to you. It's in the records. Right. But unless you know it's Diemschutz, unless you know it's Kozbrowski, you don't put it together. Nobody puts together the fact that Israel Sunshine lived at the same address where the Goulston Street graffito was left. Right. Nobody realizes that the second murder of the double event took place behind Adler's church. They hated mm-hmm. Adler. And nobody realizes that PC Police Constable Frost was beaten to a bloody pulp, dragged into and put on the exact spot where Diemschutz supposedly found Liz Stride's body, but I've shown it. It's in the record for anyone to see. It's just, it's been there hiding in plain sight. Right, yeah. (laughs) 
Well, and that's it's interesting you bring that up because some of the people that have gotten away with different murders or different crimes, the evidence was there in plain sight, and they either weren't ever arrested or convicted or even suspected. So it's kind of interesting that you had come up with all this information just from digging just a little bit deeper than what they would have done back then. Well, you remember, Justin, I told you I had this set of filters mm-hmm. that I put everything Right. And what I, one thing that you'll find is common in all serial killer cases that, of course, the police back then didn't have this data that I have. Right, right, right. But one of the things that you'll find is true in every serial killer case you look at, look at Ridgeway, look at Bundy, look at uh, Jeffrey, anybody, mm-hmm. they were all talked to by the police and discounted initially. So was Dean Schutz, for very good reason. He was discounted for very good reason. So that was one of my filters. Immediately I looked at, one of my filters said, I need a guy who has been talked to by the police but discounted. And so I took the name of everybody involved in this case, even women, and I put them through all these filters. So one of the first filters was, did the police talk to them and discount them? And a lot of names fell through that one. Right. But as they went through more and more and more of these sieves or filters, it, it ended up leaving me with only these three guys by coincidence. It wasn't like I was aiming for them. Right. And then I was left with these three names. And I'm like, that's odd because they're all connected to each other and they were all arrested together for a violent crime. We know that criminals always have some violence in their background. You know, one leads to another. Mm-hmm. So... This was one of the things that that helped me find them. I put everybody's name through, even the cops that were involved. You know, I put everybody's name through. Did the police talk to this guy and say, no, it wasn't him? And so I included every policeman that was involved, too. Right. But, you know, as it started going through more and more and more filters, more and more people got eliminated. I took the eyewitness accounts, uh, descriptions, and the descriptions um, are either a 19-year-old a, third, a 25 to 30-year-old or a 45-year-old. Those are the three ages that people give. Otherwise, they give the same basic description of a Jewish guy. Guess what? Kozbrodsky was 18 at the time. Diemschutz was 26. Friedman was 42. Oh, yeah. So the ages fit. Right. It wasn't right. like I tailored my theory to fit my suspects. They came about because... They fit every fact in the case. Why? Because they did it. Let me um, let me tell you about a, a something about Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. Now the Green River Killer was leaving all these girls' bodies at, at the Green River, and the police were looking at the bodies and they were finding on the bodies these tiny flecks of red paint. They could never figure out, you know, what they meant, but. Eventually, and they talked to Ridgway way early and discounted him. But later on through DNA, Gary Ridgway was linked to the killings. When they went to arrest him, guess where he worked? At the Kenmore Truck Factory. He was a Kenmore truck painter. Kenmore trucks are always red. That explained these little flecks of red paint nobody could figure out until they caught him. So these things that I'm telling you, like the hat connection, Mm-hmm. And the fact that Deemschutz was a costume jeweler, I'll explain that too, if you like. 
there, there's a lot of these little red fleck, flecks of paint or red herrings in the case, loose ends that nobody can sort of make sense of. But once mm-hmm. you understand who these guys were and what they did for a living, it ties in just the, the same way the red flecks of paint tied in with the Green River Killer. Okay. Hmm. So going back just a little bit, you you mentioned about how the cops had talked to uh, these particular suspects uh, that you'd come down to. Now, did you find in any case, not just this case, but many of the serial cases, uh, serial killer cases that you had mentioned, um, do you find that these police officers ended up talking to these guys to try to eliminate suspects, or was it the killers that actually approached the cops to try to eliminate themselves? Great question. Dean Schutz found a body. Now, we know historically that loads of serial killers since have pretended to find a body in order to insert themselves in the investigation, which is, Diebschutz may have been the first to ever do it, though. And the reason that the police never suspected him, of course, they talked to him because they had to. He found a body. Right. And they talked to Kozbrodsky, not Friedman. They talked to Kozbrodsky because he claimed to be uh, be there when it happened, when, when Diebschutz found the body. So he was talked to. But they, but let me tell you why Lewis was discounted and why so many ripperologists immediately think I'm crazy and don't bother reading my research. They'll immediately say he couldn't have done it. Why? Because it's always been assumed that the ripper was just one guy. Right. Why? I don't know. Because a very credible witness saw two guys killing Elizabeth Stride. So, or, or, you know, saw one guy standing guard while the other one was killing her. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, people just don't seem to think that guy was an accomplice when it's obvious he was. He chased the witness away. So after the killer shouted something to him, a Hebrew or, or a Jewish guy's name. Hmm. So in any case, the reason people think Dean Schutz couldn't have done it because he set it up that way. He purposely um, exposed himself to the police as the guy who found the body, the first body of the double event. And while he was sitting there talking to the police, a second murder took place a half a mile away. So he couldn't have done it. Now, a postcard had been sent to the police warning them that there would be two killings that night. So, of course, if the cops are sitting with this guy, they know he didn't do the second one. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he couldn't have done the first one. Because if he didn't do the if he did the first one. He couldn't have done the second, and they knew that they were both done by Jack the Ripper. Right. So he exonerated himself in a very brilliant way. He had his two accomplices pretend to run for the police when they found the body, but what they did instead was they ran to Mitre Square and killed another girl. But they waited an exact to an exact time to do it when they knew the cops would be with Dean Schutz. Mm-hmm. He knew from watching previous murder scenes, all of which were very close to his house, he knew that after he killed the girl, that once the body was discovered, he knew it took exactly 30 minutes for the cops to be on scene. So he knew by warning the police there would be two killings that night, he knew that if he started shouting for the police when he pretended to find the body at 1 a.m., mm-hmm. he knew that by 1.30, every policeman in London would be at his house. And then he knew that if another murder took place at a, another location, he knew he'd have an alibi. He'd be with the cops. Right. Therefore, he couldn't have done the second murder. And if he couldn't have done the second, by logic, he didn't do the first. 
because mm. nobody knew that it was a team. Right. <laughs> but oddly, there was a nine-inch knife used on Elizabeth Stride. There was a six-inch knife used on Catherine Eddowes. Now, earlier, one of the earlier murders, Martha Tabram, was killed with two knives, a six and a nine. Hmm. So we have a six and a nine used on a previous victim, but only a six on Liz mm-hmm. Stride, and only, only a nine on Liz Stride, and only a six on Catherine Eddowes. <laughs> so I believe that when those two guys, Friedman and Kozbrodsky, ran for the police, supposedly, after finding the body at exactly 1 a.m., Deem Shit said, which it wasn't, by the way, it was more like 12.45. But when they ran for the police, they actually ran to Mitre Square and killed another girl. But they waited, they watched the clock, the big church clock that you could see mm-hmm. from Mitre Square, and they waited because they knew they had to wait until at least 1.30 to kill another girl. They did it at 1.42. So Deem Schutz had told them specifically, you guys don't kill the girl until at least 1.30. Because then I know I'm going to have my alibi all set. Right. He's sitting with the cops. <laughs> and that's why a lot of ripperologists on first sight, when they look at my theory, they, they're going to tell you, well, it can't be. He's crazy. Because they don't realize it was a team of three. And they didn't see the difference in the M.O. between Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes. And they may not know about the two knives on Tabram and the two different knives in the two double event killings. But he set himself up with the most brilliant alibi that held up for 140 years. Right. <laughs> I guess my my final question that comes to mind is, you know, we've gone over pretty much, um, you know, the the motive of attack on Christianity, how you had filtered these these four guys down into your suspects. The biggest question that still pops up to my mind, and you you may have answered this, but maybe I just need a little more thorough answer, is why? Why go through all of this uh, exact detail uh, to to kill prostitutes for an attack on Christianity? Why? Well, as I was saying before, the main reason was to end the sweating system that was okay. that was oppressing their people. The the sweating system was such that these guys, you know, you know, like now we have the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And we have the ISIS movement, mm-hmm. and this was a very similar type of motivation. In in other words, it was basically altruistic, even though it was a horrific set of crimes. It did actually accomplish what they set out to do. Okay. Because once these Ripper crimes started bringing all this bad attention upon the British Empire, Queen Victoria saw to it that this sweating system was abolished. And she saw to it that the prostitution was cleaned up. And there were a lot of programs put into place for the benefit of the girls that were called unfortunates and prostitutes. So in other words, if you think about it, for 14 girls to die but it benefited thousands of them. In other words, they decided, I believe, unlike the, say, ISIS guys that just blow up a whole crowd or drive drive a truck through a whole crowd of innocent people, I think that they chose prostitutes and said, 
Well, you know, we don't particularly hate prostitutes. We hate prostitution. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has to die in this cause, it's going to be some prostitutes. And in the long run, 14 of them died so that thousands of them could be benefited and were benefited. So in a sense, they accomplished what they set out to do in a, in a bizarre sense. And I hate to give them credit for, for such a thing, but the right. fact is yeah. it, it did accomplish exactly what they set out to do, which was to abolish the sweating system against their people and to basically clean up Whitechapel and eliminate the homelessness, the, the, the disease, the, the poverty, the, the prostitution, and, and, but, but first and foremost, the oppression against the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I do have to say is through all of this evidence, I mean, I have to agree with, with your comrades that I think you've made a very compelling argument that these are the the killers and that you know the reason behind it all i from the very beginning when we first started talking to have you on the show at first you know you always think oh you know another ripper all is just oh, oh another another, right. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and i get a lot of that from the ripperology community because they don't look at what i've written i mean we've we haven't even touched on my best evidence yet man but but the thing is that people find it so hard to believe. They say, oh, that's a ridiculous uh, motive. But I think to myself, are you not looking at the news? Do you not see all these teams of three and four guys killing people randomly in order to promote their cause, race, religion, and politics? Mm-hmm. I mean, what more convincing do you need? You know, this Florida attack this last weekend, I mean, you just name it. These guys are, are going out and killing people indiscriminately for a cause. You know, this guy may have just been crazy, but a lot of them, you know, like the guy who drove the truck through the crowd in Nice or the guys in Paris that killed all those people, you know, at the bakery and in other people that they attacked. Right. Why are they doing it? Race, religion and politics. Right. It's the oldest motive out there besides oh. greed, lust. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Well, now we are coming up close to the end of the show here, so why don't we go ahead and I want to hear some of your best evidence that helps support your theory as to why these particular men are indeed Jack the Ripper. Okay. Well, let me just run through some of it for you. Okay. Now, as I mentioned to you, these people were all arrested together for a violent act, and I named those connections Mm -hmm. uh, there. Uh, I told you about the multiple killer evidence with Tabram having been killed with two knives, Stridenettos with two different knives. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about Dean Schutz himself, some of the evidence. Okay. First of all, he pretended to find a body to insert himself in the investigation, strategically, I believe. His description, he was Jewish, which eyewitnesses say he was say that Jack was Jewish. He fit the age. He was a seller of costume jewelry. Now, eyewitnesses said that Jack was covered with costume jewelry. Now, listen, in the 1800s, in the worst part of London, poverty, you, you think a guy's going to walk around with costume jewel, with real jewelry, a big gold right. chain and a big red jewel? Right, right. He'd be killed. Okay, It had to be costume. Now, costume jewelry, even today, isn't that popular for men. But in the 1800s, it's a very, it would have been a very rare thing. Now, Martha Tabram... The night of her death, she, I believe she was shopping for costume jewelry. 
Her husband said two nights before she died, he gave her his paycheck so that she could buy costume jewelry to resell so that she could get out of prostitution. Hmm. So we know that she was shopping for costume jewelry. Annie Chapman, another victim from Hanbury Street, was also a reseller of costume jewelry. Dean Schutz was a costume jeweler by trade. Now, he has this ridiculous story about finding the body where he claims his horse shied upon, you know, coming up to this body. Okay, I have horses. Horses, a horse would not shy away from a body 12 feet away in the dark that had just been killed. The horse would walk right past it. Mm-hmm. And if your horse does shy for whatever reason, you can't jump off your cart and go examine the body. That horse would bolt. Mm. His horse was standing there calmly when the cops came. So why would this horse suddenly be okay with standing next to this dead body when it supposedly shied at it? In the pitch black, so his story just doesn't hold up for lots of reasons. You'll find out more if you read my my link on my page. Uh, Dean Schutz posed for a picture for the newspapers where he supposedly recreated finding the body of Elizabeth Stride. In this picture, he had a full beard, but at the inquest three days later, he was drawn by a police sketch artist with no beard. Now, Jewish men are not allowed to shave their beard. There are certain parts of the beard that are not allowed to be touched by the razor, according to their Talmud, their, their, their Torah, their Bible. But yet, three days after having found the body, he fully shaved. Why? Because he knew that a policeman had seen him talking to Elizabeth Stride uh, before the killing. So he was afraid that when he went to the inquest, the cop would recognize him. So how do us guys change our appearance? Grow a beard or shave it. Right, right. You know, we don't have makeup and things like girls do. You know, so he changed his appearance. Why? Why would you shave your beard, especially a Jewish man? They're not allowed to, mm. except under the most extreme circumstances. He shaved between finding the body and the Tuesday where he went to the inquest. But bigger than that, Diemschitz and Kozabrodsky claimed to have seen a packet of, of candy in one of the girl's hand, in, in Stride's hand, and a bunch of grapes in her other hand. Both Dean Schitz and Kozbrowski said they saw that. No one else, just mm-hmm. them. He insisted upon it, and in the police sketch, or the newspaper sketch, he had the girl drawn with grapes in her hand. Here's the problem. None of the doctors, none of the police, saw any grapes in the victim's hand when the police came to the scene. However, two days later, two full days after the murder, two private detectives named Grand and Bachelor went to the scene where Liz Stride's body had been. And what did they find in the gutter? Blood-caked grapes. They were covered in blood, which means they were there before the murder took place. Right. Now, they found these grapes. The doctors didn't see the grapes. None of the witnesses saw the grapes. No policemen. But Dean Schutz and Kozbrowski insisted in the newspaper that she had grapes in her hand. How did they know? Because Dean Schutz gave her the grapes. That's how he tempted her to come there. She was starving to death. He said, here, you want some of these grapes, little girl? And she Mm -hmm. followed him. He knew that she had grapes in her hand, but she dropped them during the killing, and nobody bothered taking note of them because they weren't important. But Dean Schutz claimed they were still in her hand when the doctor was examining her. That's one of the ways that he stepped on his, well, I don't want to say it on the radio, but he, he made a mistake. He shot himself mm-hmm. in the foot. Another thing that Dean Schitt said to the newspaper 
was he said, the girl that I found uh, that night, uh, she was dressed quite a bit better than the girl that was killed a couple of weeks ago. Here's the problem with that statement. I know almost everything there is to know about the evidence of this case, but I don't know how Annie Chapman was dressed. You know why? Because her clothes were completely ripped to shreds and covered in blood. So nobody knows how she was dressed, mm-hmm. better or worse than Elizabeth Stride. Right. But Dean Schutt says she was Stride was dressed quite a bit better than Annie Chapman. How did he suddenly become an expert on the case and know what Annie Chapman was dressed like? It's right there in the newspaper records. I'm not making this up. Right. He said it. So how did he know how Annie Chapman was dressed? Well, I know how he knows because he saw her before he killed her. So he knew that Stride was dressed better than Chapman. But he shot himself in the foot making that statement to the newspapers. Hmm. So this is some of the evidence I have against Deemships. He also claimed that his horse and buggy were kept stabled in George Yard. George Yard stables. Mm-hmm. Remember Martha Tabram? Guess where she was killed? George Yard stables. At 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, guess what? Dean Schutz claims in his statement that you can read for yourself. I get home from the market between 1 and 2 on Saturdays. So he would have been coming home, parking his horse and buggy in George Yard stable, right when Martha Tabram was killed. And remember, Martha Tabram was the one that was shopping for costume jewelry. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that Deem Schutz set her up and said, hey, I'll meet you at your place. You know, he probably knew her because he probably saw her every time he tabled his horse. And he said, you know, I'll bring you some costume jewelry and then killed her at George Yard Stable where he kept his horse. So he, he points himself in, he, he points at himself in, in all of his statements, like so many killers have done since. If you watch like forensic files, how many times have you seen like where they show clips of the neighbor saying, Oh, she was such a nice lady. I hope that guy that killed her gets caught. And it right. turns out that's the murderer. Right. It's the same kind of deal with Dean Schutz in the George Yard. Hmm. At the inquest, he was interviewed and they said, uh, introduce yourself a little bit. And he said, well, I'm the steward at the International Men's Club. I've been the steward there for six or seven years. That was in 1888. The club had only been open for less than three years at the time. Why did he lie and say he was the steward for six or seven years? He was only 26 at the time. So he claims he became the steward of the club at 19. But the club had only been open for less than three years. Why the lie? I mean, it, it's it's not evidence. It's just why did he lie? Right. Dean Schutz, as I told you, his name, Dean Schutz, isn't even a real name. It means protector of noble women. Dames. Dames. Not like gangster talk dames, but like dame... Judith Dench, mm-hmm. you know, but the equivalent of a knight for a female. Right. Mm-hmm. Protector of noble women, not prostitutes. Right. So these are some of the things, you know, that, that point to him. The Kozbrodsky, the, the initials cut in the girl's face. The fact that one of the victims, an earlier victim who lived before um, she finally succumbed to her wounds, said three guys attacked her. One stood guard. He was about 40-something. The one was between 25 and 30, and the one that did the most to her, the most damage and attacked her the worst, was about 19. That fits Kozbrodsky perfectly. He was 18 at the time. <laughs> there's, there's just so much more uh, that I could tell you, but you know, if, if people even give my theory a chance, 
and look at it, they'll understand. I'm not just a crackpot. This evidence is, is it's actually in the record. Right. You know, I had some guy on Twitter write to me and say, oh, I scanned through your evidence and you're, you know, you're crazy, you're a crackpot. And I thought, if you scan through my evidence and don't look at it, you really haven't even given it a chance to understand the meaning of it. Right. But it's all there. This, I'm not making stuff up, man. Read it. It's all in the record. Those statements by Dean Schutz, all these things that I'm telling you, him being a costume jeweler, tabroom shopping for jewelry, the two knives, it's all in the record. All those connections to Mitre Square and, and the, the IWMEC during the riot, the Goulston Street connection, and there's so much more. I can't even begin to tell you it all in this interview. Right, right. I think it's difficult because, you know, I think for so many years, about 140 years almost, uh, you know, society in and of itself has just believed that Jack the Ripper has been one particular person, and that's it. And so I think, like, when they look into your theory and your research on it, it's a hard pill for them to swallow because they already believe one thing and they want to believe they're one. You know, it's hard to change your mind uh, and be open-minded about that. So it, 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 I understand it's kind of tough to do that. Uh, and, and there's times you're like some of the stuff that I read in, in, in uh, your articles, you know, some of it I'm like, eh, I don't know. But then some of it is like, whoa, this is, this you is intriguing, you know. Whole, right. And then you see it. And, and I understand it's a hard pill to swallow, but let's think about this. Let's talk about eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, we know Emma Smith said three guys attacked her. We also know that about the two knives on Tabram. Mm-hmm. I can't find any cases of serial killers using two knives on one girl right. or one victim. Um, let's talk about the fact that Israel Schwartz stumbled upon the Liz Stride murder in front of the IWMEC. He said, I saw one guy killing her. And the other guy chased me away after the first guy yelled something to him. And they were both Jews. Mm-hmm. He chased, this guy chased me down the street. In fact, chased him to the Pynchon Street Railway Arch, which is where another body was found sometime later. Hmm. So, you know, it tells me right off the bat, you know there's two of them. Right. I mean, if you think that Deemschutz interrupted the killer... Everybody thinks that the killer was interrupted in the act, and that's why he didn't mutilate Liz Stride. And they think Deemschutz interrupted him. Why didn't Deemschutz or anyone else see the killer leave the yard then? There's only one way out. And he would have had to have literally leapfrog over the body. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw him leave. Why? Because he didn't have to leave. He was there. He was in plain sight. But we know that Israel Schwartz interrupted the killers. And that's why Liz Stride wasn't mutilated. Because in the old days, if you had a guy standing guard across the road, you wanted to kill the girl at your club for propaganda. The only reason any of us even know the IWMEC existed is because of the Ripper killings. Mm-hmm. Propaganda. So if you if you have a guy standing guard across the street and he sees somebody coming and he shouts or you shout to him, you see somebody coming and you shout a code word to him, He chases the guy away. At that point in time, they didn't have cell phones or text or anything or walkie-talkies. Right. So he knows somebody's just seen me in the act. we got to cut this short. We don't have time to mutilate this girl because this this guy might start shouting for the police. He doesn't know that his friend was successful chasing the guy away and scaring him. Mm -hmm. So that's why he stopped mutilating Liz Stride. I don't know why ripperologists don't understand that. Everybody knows Israel Schwartz came along. 
and interrupted the killing. That's why he stopped mutilating, because he was chased away by Samuel Friedman in the street, who was standing guard. Mm -hmm. That's his M.O. That's what Emma Smith said he did when the other two were attacking her. He stood guard. And so I don't understand why Rick Rall just have not seen that. It's so obvious that there was more than one of them. Right. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) But you can see for the record, Google, you know, don't even look at my, you know, my document. Google for yourself, Israel Schwartz, and look Mm -hmm. at his statement. It's obvious. And guess what? The next two days later, he was approached by a newspaper man and the police, and he didn't want to talk. Mm-hmm. At first, he didn't want to talk, and a newspaper man finally convinced him to talk, and he completely changed the story of what he saw. He right. said it was a drunk guy, and he gave a description of a redheaded guy. Because why? Him being a local Jew, the killers knew him. I believe that Friedman visited him and said, hey, you better change your story, buddy. Otherwise, you and your new wife are going to suffer for it. Right. So he completely wow. changes his story because he was intimidated. Mm. You know, and it's it really is like, um, as you just said, you know, if not just don't just read what you wrote and you watch your videos and stuff, but check it out on Google yourself, you know, see what you find. And we often tell a lot of our listeners, all of our listeners, not to always take our word for what we say and the research and our theories behind that research, but to do the research yourself and compare it to what we're giving you. Because then you'll have even stronger evidence to support, well, either theory. But, you know, mostly it's to show, like, hey, what we're saying isn't in ignorance. You know, we have a reason to have the theories that we have. Look into it yourself, you know, and maybe you'll learn. But well, That's what I want people to do. Like right. this guy that Googled me today with this insult about my theory. He doesn't understand. I've spent 40 years on it, and I have three of the world's top criminologists agreeing with me that yeah. I've cracked it. Well, I think that's one of the biggest things that goes in your favor as well is you have three people that have been proven to have solved cases or looked at other cases. Um, and they're like, dude, you're it. You, (laughs) you did it. See, here's my book. It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. What we did was see the three doctors and myself were all big Sherlock Holmes fans. So what we decided to do was present my theory in a way that Sherlock Holmes solves the crime. But you see on the cover here are the three doctors' names. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael M. Bodden, Cyril H. Weck, and Dr. Henry C. Lee. Those guys don't put their names on a book that promotes a theory that they don't agree with. They're not going to stake their professional reputations on some crackpot theory. Right. These guys are the top, top, top of their field. Google the names. Find out who they are for yourself. These guys are no lightweights, man. Right. And they were approached by a really, really top wealthy author to rubber stamp that theory that was being promoted in those books. And they all three of them refused because they said, no way is your suspect Jack the Ripper. Right. But yet, and they, and they refused payment to, to rubber stamp that theory. All three of them have taken part in my book for no payment. So if, if, if you understand who they are and the fact that they believe in my theory and understand and help me uncover more, then you would understand that it's not just I'm not just your average crackpot ripperologist. 
yes, I'm a crackpot in my own way, but not in this case. Right. And and everything that I'm telling you is backed up with evidence, like that video that you referred to, mm. where mm-hmm. I showed those letters coming out. Right. You can't deny it. It's there. I mean, you could say, oh, that's a coincidence. All right, fine. It's a coincidence. But you can't deny that those figures are based upon L, D, I, K, and S, F. It's very obvious once I show it to you. Well, the and way it's drawn, too. Yeah. Yeah, the way it's I mean, drawn, it's almost like a child did it. But in a sense, when you actually bring out the letters, it makes more sense why it looks the way that it looks. So I, that's the one thing that drew my attention uh, with all all of your evidence and that you'd come up with that because it's like, yeah, that that drawing does not look <laughs> the way somebody would draw it normally. Right. So. It, it's weird looking, right? It's yeah. weird looking. So I mean, even stick I figures would have been better. Than the way. Right. But, but <laughs> I looked at it and I immediately drew that parallel to those old highlights puzzles. Right. Yeah. You know, which, by the way, those type of puzzles were popular in England. In the mm-hmm. 1800s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anagrams, word games, and those type of puzzles originated in that time period. Hmm. So this guy did it on purpose. And, and right. the only reason I saw it is, like I said, I looked at that sketch and I was like, you know, that sketch looks funny. And and it reminds me of those old highlights things, you know? Right. And then once I went to work on it, and, and even the fact that the guy doing the ripping is the IK figure. And mm-hmm. the little bees over the eyes in the in the victim are just like what was left on Catherine Eddowes' face. Right. And then the main guy who's bigger than everybody else is LD, of all things. And and the guy standing against the wall is, is, is SF. It's not transposed. Mm. Right, right. And you can't get Louis Deemschutz out of figure one or three, nor can you get Kozbrodsky out of the other two. It, it's too weird. And there's a very obvious PP, Prince Peter, Kropotkin for mm-hmm. in there. It, it's it's just too coincidental. It's just too coincidental. And, and like I said, that won't prove anything in and of itself. Right. But once you understand through the solid evidence that I found against the men, you realize that this is the icing on the cake, and it makes perfect sense. Even the fact that it was sent to the owner of the wretched den where Mary Kelly lived, which Prince Kropotkin says. Oh, Jack the Ripper wasn't such a bad guy after all. Uh, you know, he, he actually did something good for us. And if if we had a chance to to shoot him, uh, you know, that day, it might have been better to shoot the owner of the wretched den where Mary Kelly lived, rather than shoot Jack the Ripper. And guess who got the letter? The owner of the wretched den. So you know, it, it's just another piece. I, I can't even possibly tell your viewers everything that I found in this. In this short period, right. but if you can direct them to my page, there's a main page. There's an essay I did called "What If," and basically I say, "What if I could show you this? Mm-hmm. What if I could prove this to you? And what if I could prove that to you?" And then I have links to essays in which I do prove it with solid evidence. So the people that scan it say, "Yeah, what if you could, but you can't," and then they just turn it off. Right. But if but if you look at the document and it says, what if I could prove this to you? Would you believe I was right? And, of course, if you go, yeah, but you can't, so forget you. Well, of course, those people are going to still think I'm a crackpot. But if right. you go to the links in that essay that point you to exactly how I prove it to you, right? Yeah. then you'll, you'll see solid evidence that's in the record for anyone to see. You can Google it yourself. I haven't manipulated the evidence. 
But I point you to that evidence. And each little what-if question in that essay leads you to one of those links, which would then further go in and factually prove, what if I could, and here I'm doing it. What if I could mm-hmm. show you this? Here it is. I'm showing it to you. And so the problem with um, with with some of the people detracting from me is that they don't give the essays a chance to prove the what-ifs. But I would invite your viewers to look at that document and then go to the, the, the link and see where I've proven my case right. and then yep. challenge Absolutely. it. Check my facts. Check for yourself. Right. There's no other conclusion to come to once you understand what I'm showing you. Right. And yeah. I, I said this last week, and I'll say it again. The research starts here. It doesn't end here, folks. So I completely agree to you know look at his his essay, look at his research, and then research it yourself. Find out what you think is is going on, and then match it to or or discredit whichever you think you can do. And go from there. But yeah, I completely agree. Do the research yeah. yourself and match it yeah. up the, to what you're saying. I mean, you can't discredit somebody when you find the exact same evidence that you particularly came across. Google Google the days of the murders, and you'll see for yourself they're all Theodicos days. Mm-hmm. Google for yourself Theodicos, and you'll see what it is. Mother Mary. Right. Google for yourself how many Theodicos days there are in a year. Twelve. Do the math yourself. The odds against it having been coincidental are seven followed by 15 zeros. I call that a yabba dabba dillion. <laughs> there's no such name for the number. Uh, are seven followed by 15 zeros to one that it's by chance. That's like DNA. Right. So... It was done on purpose on Theodicos days. Mm-hmm. Prince Kropotkin, his mother built a church to the intercession of the Theodicos. I believe he thought that money should have been spent on the poor people, the downtrodden. It was a waste of money for this stupid religion that I don't believe in. You wasted all that money on the stupid church. And guess what? The double event took place on the feast of the intercession of the Theodicos. It was planned to take place on that very day. Right. Google it yourself, man. I'm not making this up. It's a fact. Right. So, you know, you want to believe it's a coincidence? Go ahead. But it's it's not. It was very strategically planned. And by the way, the Feast of the Intercession at Theodicos is the biggest of the 12 great feasts and is very fervently celebrated in Russia even today, <laughs> let alone in 1888. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to go ahead and take our second of the last break here. We are currently speaking with Randy Williams about his theory on the identity of Jack the Ripper. We will be right back after Justin's Paranormal Headlines. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. 
And now, Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. What's going on, Parafans? Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines, and these headlines are from unexplainedmysteries.com. Prehistoric human DNA found on cave floor. Scientists have found a way to identify the DNA of our ancestors from prehistoric bone dust samples. The remarkable breakthrough, which comes courtesy of Matthias Meyer and colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, makes it possible to obtain DNA from our prehistoric ancestors by analyzing dust collected from the floor of the caves they once inhabited. The idea really isn't that far-fetched, as the remains of the people who died in the caves are likely to still be there, albeit ground up into tiny fragments of bone and mixed in with the dust and dirt. Incredibly, the researchers have already succeeded in locating some ancient human DNA using this technique. However, there is still a long way to go before it will be possible to fully analyze it. The next step will be to develop the techniques needed to determine exactly where each sample originated, as well as to piece together a more complete picture of a particular species. We've been recently trying to explore new sources of ancient human DNA, as the fossil record is very limited, said Meyer. You just take a shovel with some dirt, and then you look for DNA. NASA announces two new asteroid missions. Known as Lucy and Psyche, the new spacecraft will be studying two relics of the early solar system. Lucy, which will launch in 2021, is going to visit the mysterious Trojans, a group of asteroids in orbit around the planet Jupiter, while also paying a visit to a separate, smaller asteroid on the way. Psyche, on the other hand, which launches in 2023, will be headed towards 16 Psyche, a 130-mile-wide object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. One of the largest asteroids in the belt, 16 Psyche, is of particular interest to scientists because unlike most other asteroids, it is comprised of metallic iron and nickel, just like the Earth's core. This is an opportunity to explore a new type of world, not one of rock or ice, but of metal, said Psyche Principal Investigator Lindy Elkins Canton. 16 Psyche is the only known object of its kind in the solar system, and this is the only way humans will ever visit a core. We learn more about inner space by visiting outer space. Both missions were picked as part of the Space Agency's ongoing discovery program. These missions will help us learn about the infancy of our solar system, a period just 10 million years after the birth of our sun, said Jim Green, NASA's chief planetary scientist. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. What's up, folks? Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. I'm Justin. And we are talking 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are talking with Randy Williams about his theory on the identity of Jack the Ripper. Now, Randy, we are here on the end of the show, last few minutes here. So what we would like to do is just give you a moment to tell people where they can find your book, where they can find your essays, and of course, feel free to give out any information you'd like. The floor is yours. Okay, well, thank you. Um, well, my book is called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. Here it is. Um, and it's basically um, a way of introducing the theory and explaining the theory where I have Sherlock Holmes telling the reader exactly what I did, the steps I took, and how I cracked the case. But rather than bore people and put myself into the story, I have Sherlock Holmes doing what I did and showing the evidence that I found. And, you know, I hope to have maybe taught a little bit of history to the reader along the way. There's a lot of interesting characters in the 1800s and interesting factoids. There's a, a automaton or robot-like thing called uh, Psycho, and invented by John Neville Maskelin, a famous uh, magician. He appears in the book. There's a lot of neat characters and things uh, that I hope to entertain the reader along the way while telling them about the Ripper case. Mm-hmm. And my book is available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's in Kindle form right now um, and in paperback on Amazon. And then on Lulu.com, it's available as a hardback version. So it's in paper, Kindle, ebook. It's in a lot of different ebook formats. I don't know a lot about ebooks, but it's in the various ebook formats that exist. And you can find it fairly easily if you Google either, you know, Randy Williams, Sherlock Holmes, or the name of the book, Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. That's what they call the period when the Ripper was killing girls, the Autumn of Terror. Okay. So um, you can find it on any of those. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, the, the book itself has a page, Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And I think it comes up under Facebook. It comes up... Uh, as Randy Williams versus Jack the Ripper, all no spaces. I think that's the, you know, that's the uh, page address. Mm-hmm. But you can find it. I'm pretty sure if you just Google it on on Facebook, or, or Google it or Facebook it, and you'll find me there. Uh, I'd love to have people come in and look at the page, look at the what if document, and then click on the various links. And I know that your initial instinct is going to be, oh, this guy's a crackpot. But give it a chance. Click on the links. Everything is backed up with facts. None of it is, you know, it's none of it just hanging in the air. Sure, I make conjectures, like like I say with the with the sketch that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But everything in there is based upon hard facts that are easily googled and and confirmed as fact. I'm not putting anything in there that isn't a fact. So I hope that people will check out my book. Uh, I hope that eventually it. it you know, sells well that people like it and that, you know, maybe it turns into a mini series or something someday. You know, I, I hope that uh, it, it goes somewhere. Um, and not only, it's not just out of a, a desire to make money. It's, like, like I said, it's really my legacy on this earth. And I really want people to understand that I really have cracked it. And I want Jack the Ripper or Rippers to be named and shamed. And I want them to, although they can't be prosecuted, there's no statute of limitation on murder. And I want them to be held accountable for their crimes. And by the way, in a court of law in the United States of America, motive is not required to gain a a conviction. True. So if you understand just the facts, even if you don't buy the motive, even if you don't agree that they had the same motives 
as as the ISIS guys and, and other religious religiously motivated killers in present and past history. Even if you don't buy into that, remember that motive is not a requirement of the prosecution in a U.S. court of law. As long as I can prove you did it, I don't have to prove why you did it. Yes, as a, a prosecutor, I want to show the the jury why he did it, you know, insurance or jealousy, whatever. They like to hear a motive, and, I, and I've presented my motive. Hmm. But remember that motive is not a requirement in a court of law. Hmm. Oh. All right. Well, thank you, Randy, so much for joining us and uh, just sharing this awesome evidence that you came up with. Uh, it's been an honor t- talking with you. I uh, had a lot of fun tonight, and yeah. uh, hopefully we'll talk to you next time. Have you on again. Hey, All right. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was Randy Williams discussing his theory on the identity of Jack the Ripper. That was interesting. Yeah. and It was interesting. I, I think that uh, he does a very good job pointing out everything uh, with the what-if essay and then linking people to it uh in my opinion i i believe that he's probably the closest that he's that anybody's going to get to solving the case i mean as we had said you know it it's kind of hard to prove a case with evidence that's like so far Back in history, like you can't do DNA evidence, you can't look at the right. bodies, you can't do anything other than look at the documented evidence. So I think he's right. done a really good job with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, folks. Uh, next week we are going to have on our good friend Kay Carswell. Uh, we are going to be discussing mass hysteria and basically what influences that mass hysteria and what does mass hysteria actually do. To the rest of the people. <laughs> this, this is why you do this part. <laughs> well, and it, it'll be interesting because, I mean, it, there's a good chance that paranormal activity is linked to mass hysteria as well. Oh, yeah, sure. So one thing I wanted to ask you really fast before we wrap it up, and it can be a really quick question or answer, is okay. what are your... Like, what are your thoughts on his take on uh, it being an attack on Christianity? Do you think he pointed it out pretty well that it it was a religious um, motive? Um, I I think I need more information okay. in order to necessarily you know to uh, to confirm that it was indeed uh, an attack on Christianity. Though I think there is some evidence that support it. Uh, I don't think I heard enough or have read enough yet to agree with it. So, I mean, I, again, you know, we've been talking through the whole show, do our own research. And that's something that even though I brushed up on before the show, uh, I just haven't had enough time to really, you know, dive deep into it. So uh, I don't know for sure if that even, if even you know, if that particular motive even matters at this point. Uh, what I do, I, I think, have some kind of agreement in it is there seems to be a lot of evidence that does support his theory, you know, that it was more than one guy. And in a sense, it's kind of disappointing because we've always had, at least I have always had this idea of who Jack the Ripper was. And it's always been kind of mysterious because that he was mysterious. He's never been caught, you know. And so now that 
we have this possible evidence supporting not only uh, who the Jack, Jack the Ripper was, but whom and how many of whom, you know, they were as Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's a little disappointing because that mystery seems to be slowly sliding away and becoming <laughs> truth. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And I, I think over the next couple of weeks, months, years, we're going to end up learning a lot more. And I definitely think that Randy is onto something. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. You know, he brought up a couple of things that have intrigued me to an extent. And that's something you and I will discuss after the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one thing that I do hope is that somewhere down the line that he does end up having, I don't know how you would do it, but basically having somebody say, you're exactly right. Right. You know, I, well, and you know what the thing is though, it, it I don't think there's ever going to be a point in which anyone can actually say you're exactly right. Because without the DNA evidence to support the theory and back it up, all you've got is a theory. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of evidence to it. And I know he says that, you know, you don't need all of this and all that. You just need to know, find a way to prove that it was these guys. But again, without having some kind of DNA evidence, uh, from these murders and, I just don't think there's enough, you know, for me personally, you know, I think it'll always be a theory, but a strong theory. Like I said, you know, without having the killer around uh, today, right. without being able to get the guilty verdict and get them to, uh, uh, to claim their guilt, we, we don't know. Right. So, okay. All right, folks, that is Jack the Ripper mystery solved. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. Do you love Paratruth Radio? Do you feel Paratruth Radio is worth at least a dollar? Then check out our Patreon account. Go to paratruthradio.com, click on the contact tab, and click on our Patreon link. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again, or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day.
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Right.